Hello, everyone. This is Mike Epstein, and welcome to Speaking of the Arts. I'm really excited for today's guest. We're speaking with the legendary Mike Kappas. In, seven, in 19... I almost said in 1776. In 1976, <laughs> Mike started... Not that old. <laughs> that old. Well, he went on to help launch the careers of Los Lobos, the Robert Cray Band, Ben Harper, George Thorogood and the Destroyers, John Hyatt, the Neville Brothers, Trombone Shorty, and many more, while helping to raise the profile of veteran artists such as Alan Toussaint, Captain Beefheart, Muddy Waters, the Staples Singers, the Blind Boys of Alabama, Albert Collins, John Lee Hooker, and others. As a manager, Mike's clients included the Dirty Dozen Brass Band, Robert Cray, John Hyatt, Duke Robillard, London Wainwright III, Sierra Leone's Refugee All-Stars, and co-management client, Trombone Shorty on Orleans Avenue. Although the Rosebud Agency closed its booking division at the end of 2013, Mike continues to do amazing work. He was honored with an, an induction into the Blues Hall of Fame in 2014. In fact, Mike was the only individual to have won the Blues Foundation's Agent Manager of the Year Award more than once, having won four times over the years. Furthermore, the Blues Music Foundation has described Mike as the kind of manager and booking agent any musician would want and one of the most respected men in the business. Mike, thank you so much for being here today. It's really an honor to talk to you. Oh, well, thanks a lot. Now I'm supposed to live up to all that? <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't put you on the spot. Um, okay. But again, I, I just, I'm just i really excited to do this conversation, and you've been so kind to agree to do it. To start things off, t tell me the story of how you came to found Rosebud. Well, um, I was working in Milwaukee. Um, I actually started in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, my hometown, just promoting little shows and and booking local acts and everything. And the, an agency invited me to come to Milwaukee to work for them, and I'd booked some shows with them and and uh, appreciated the work, I guess. Anyway, I was I went from one agency to another in Milwaukee when problems arose with the first one, uh, like not being paid properly. But uh, at any rate, uh, I was while working in Milwaukee. Um, I, I, in addition to being an agent for regional bands and everything else, so it was typical of us to when a, a club wanted to bring in a bigger national artist, we would have contacts to be able to do that and help help bring in the acts for them. And one situation developed where I was doing. And one of the clubs was doing national entertainment almost all the time, and I was doing almost all of their booking for that. Um, some of the artists I would contact would say, well, sure, we'd love to come to Milwaukee, but it's kind of isolated. You know, we'd need need something else to go with it. Otherwise, it doesn't make economic sense for us to do it. So so I started, you know, develop. This happened in some occasions. Others, it was not a concern, but in some occasions that came up. So... I started, you know, and there was other clubs that I knew that wanted to bring in national entertainment on occasion. So I just kind of built out a circuit a little bit with, you know, places in northern Wisconsin and Minnesota and Iowa and Chicago and so on, and so that I could offer somebody a series of dates and ended up developing a good relationship with a number of artists where that, that kind of relationship grew outward and outward from Milwaukee with Mose Allison and John Lee Hooker and Eddie Harris to the point where in uh, the case of Eddie Harris and, and uh, John Lee Hooker, it grew to be basically John Lee Hooker, everything east of Colorado and 
and uh, in the case of Eddie Harris, everything except the West Coast. And uh, came a point when I really felt like I I wanted to go to another metropolitan area, and you know, on one of the coasts probably. And I'd fallen in love with San Francisco, and then uh, Eddie Harris had actually wanted me to set up a uh, shop in his own home in Los Angeles, which I didn't think would probably be the healthiest work environment, but the people that were booking him on the West Coast, he spoke with, and uh, they were interested in having me come aboard. Um, that was Keystone Music Agency, which was an offshoot of the Keystone Corner Jazz Club, which was a legendary jazz club here for many, many years. So, and I was, I had fallen in love with San Francisco, so I went for the opportunity and came out here, uh, but it was, the company was extremely disorganized as an agency. It really, it was just kind of haphazardly doing things and, uh, you know, did some good things there, but I came to work one day and the, I had not been paid for the first the three months I'd been working there, and I came to work one day, and the phones were cut off because the phone company hadn't been paid either. So, um, so I went home and talked to Eddie Harris, who, uh, you know, said he'd do whatever, wherever I went, he was with me. And I was managing John Hyatt at the time, actually. This is August of 1976, and John said he'd stick with me wherever I went. And I called up uh, Michael Bloomfield, who we'd done a little bit of work with at. Uh, at the uh, Keystone uh, Music Agency, and uh, we talked for 45 minutes, and he said, you're the most logical agent I ever talked to. I'll do everything with you. So he was my first fresh signing on day one. Uh, uh, a lot of people don't know him now, but he was, uh, you know, he and uh, Al Cooper did the first uh, a record called Super Session, along with Steve Sills, which was uh, one of the first meetings of rock superstars kind of michael was in bob dylan's band when dylan went electric he was uh you know a really huge influence on blues and he was in the butterfield blues band which turned so many people on uh with young white rock audience onto the blues and everything at any rate that's how i got to california that's how i started rosebud not knowing on that day if i was just having a couple clients to work with for a few days or a week or whatever until I hooked up with somebody else or, or what the case might be. But it it turned out I didn't uh, find anything else I really wanted to join and, and I didn't I wanted to stay in San Francisco. I love it here so so it just kept going. That's great. And and why uh where did the name Rosebud come from? Uh Rosebud is a uh a, a key word in the film Citizen Kane, which is generally ranked among the top ten, if not number one films of all time. Uh, and it really didn't impact me that much in the film, but I was just, uh, I was in Milwaukee and I was at a time when I had more responsibility than was comfortable actually. I was just kind of stressed and I was thinking, ah, for the times when I was eight or nine years old that uh, out in the country in the summertime and deciding to go hike in the woods or go fishing on the lake or something, you know, and thinking of and it reminded me of, in the film, Citizen Kane, Rosebud is the name of Citizen Kane's sled. He built a huge empire, but what he long, his last word was Rosebud, which was the name of his sled. And it always made me think that the empire was not important. What was important was the good times as a kid. And so, not that I had any empire, but uh, I was longing. You know, at that moment I was thinking, 
for the simplicity of, you know, being a kid. And I said to myself, if I ever had a company, I'd just call it Rosebud. So so I did, again, thinking that that may have been for a few days or a month, but uh, turned into 40 years. That's great. And did you, in the early days when you started, did did you have a vision for your agency? And, and if so, what was it? I really actually did have a vision, and, and amazingly, um, you know, a lot of the time what I do hasn't got a long-term plan, but I actually wrote down on a yellow legal pad exactly what I wanted to do right in the very beginning, along with a budget, which was crazy silly, because now that budget for a month has turned out to be less than what I could, you know, pay for a day's expenses for, but, but I did sneak by on that at the time. At any rate, the vision was... I'd had friends when I was in Milwaukee who I worked with and helped build them up to a certain point, and they got some real significant attention from major players in the the music industry, including Clive Davis and others. And uh, they said, thanks so much for you. I mean, I'd been paying for the rent in a loft in New York and all sorts of things and, and really supported them. But they came to a point where they, you know, I was a regional agent in Milwaukee, and they said, uh, Thanks for all your help, but now we're off to, and this dates it, uh, we're, now we're off to compete with Elton John and Led Zeppelin. Uh, and they joined the William Morris Agency thinking they were going to be on top of the world in a matter of months. And in a couple of weeks, they came back to me and, and were saying, anything you can get for us, any work at all, we've got nothing whatsoever, because they realized they were on the bottom of a roster of hundreds of artists and totally ignored. And uh, I also was... In a situation where I'd see people around me uh, talking to new artists and, and getting them all excited about what they were going to do for them and, and signing them, and a few, maybe a month or two later, going through the same process with somebody else and really building up their hopes about what they could do for them, and, and again and again for you know every few months somebody new, and at, at a certain point you just can't follow through on all those promises. There's not enough time in the day. Um, so when I started this company, the idea was keep it small and make sure everybody gets proper attention and nobody feels like they're being disregarded for somebody higher up on a totem pole. And I stuck with that all the way through. Um, became slightly more difficult at times with other agents uh, who, you know, are really determined, really excited about somebody and, and want to bring somebody in and uh, but also the agents were very good, too. They really adopted the, and lived that theme themselves and, and were very cautious individually about signing too many things and, and not having time enough to really devote the attention to everybody. And I think that really made us different because uh, you think about somebody with a, a regular straight job uh, managing a store or something like that, and they've got to be there eight hours and Maybe they take on another job for four or five or six hours, and then they're offered another job, and it gets to a point where this no, it can't do it. It's just not possible. There's not enough hours in the day. But in the music industry, I think it happens a lot that with record companies, booking agencies, sometimes management companies, although they generally stay smaller, that people can be going crazy busy and having no free time whatsoever and wishing they had more time to devote to their their artist needs, but an opportunity comes along, and they they just can't pass it up. And so, you know, if you already filled 16 hours, where does the time come in to help the new artists? It's, they don't get as much as maybe they could use. 
the other artists you've already committed to get less time devoted to them you know but it's it's really common throughout the industry to not pass up what somebody feels is a good opportunity um so uh you know i've always kept that in mind and really been concerned about you know we are responsible for uh bread on the table for all the artists and their families so to really make sure not to uh, not to uh, spread ourselves too thin and that was built in right from the beginning you're saying this idea yeah, yeah. i wrote it right down on a you know, legal pad to, you know devote the i forget the exact wording now but it was like one or two sentences to uh, maintain a small roster so that everybody felt like they were getting full attention and and of ideally artists that were also not trend dependent you know artists with uh you know music that'll that'll last and transcend the trends right okay well, okay so someone who is essentially trying to do the same <laughs> i've got a vision for my agency written down right here on my desk actually what advice would you have for what you're talking about? I mean, how did you balance the the sort of need to, when you're kind of starting out, um, you know, focus on those two or three artists that you're working with who are in a different place than some of the others who are not as well known, mm-hmm. but the music is still great. I mean, how did you sort of reconcile that in the beginning? Um, I don't know. Does that make sense? Well, you just have to uh you have to give them all the time they need. Um I think it's very typical in this industry, especially larger agencies, that uh you know, there's only so much time in the day again and uh so, you know, if your phone is ringing or your emails are pouring in for a certain artist and it's your obligation to uh deal with every one of those offers or interests or circumstances, um and the new and up-and-coming artists, they are not getting a lot of email. People don't know about them as much, so you're not getting that same level of attention. I think, you know, you just have to... With me, I, I put in the extra hours, and crazy, crazy hours, 8,200 hours a week for over 30 years, close to 40 years, which wasn't healthy, but it was... Uh, uh, if you're going to do it, you know, if you're going to make the commitment to somebody... You either follow through, or, or as many people do, they they do what they have time for, and they don't necessarily give the artist everything they need, you know. And and uh, a lot actually, you know. There's as far as growing in the industry, there's uh, it does make a difference. An organized manager versus somebody who's not uh, an agent, and so on and so forth. But a lot is really dependent on the artist, and. Uh, and shifting over to something that was really not my role, but I was involved in it to a great deal, is publicity. Um, that's a very tricky area as to articles written about somebody. Is that because it's the publicist really did a job, and in many cases they do, or is it really more about there was really a great story there? You know, who's really responsible? But ideally, everybody involved in a project is doing their best, and that's when things work. If the artist has great music and and nowadays a great story is really crucial um, because nowadays it's not a matter of uh, a certain number of records going to radio there's an overwhelming number of records being produced independently and everything and 
also people are not listening to the one primary radio station in their city, which used to be the case. Now there's so many information streams as to how to get your music, and also information streams about talking about music. So as far as being in people's mind, in their consciousness, in their awareness, uh, you have to be in that many more places to be able to really be remembered because there's such a volume of information. It's in one ear and out the other so much of the time or, or seen and then gone and then you see another thousand things before you see that name again. So to really make an impact, it's got to be a, a constant, you know, you've got to be in somebody's consciousness much more frequently. And, and instead of doing a limited number of interviews or doing one interview with the radio station in Denver and one with the one in Chicago and so on, uh, an artist has to do a lot more. I'm sorry if I'm verging off the track here, but uh, go ahead and, and follow with whatever comes next. But. <laughs> <laughs> You're saying so much that I'm, I'm just sort of formulating how, where, which direction we could go in. In those early days, or maybe even later on, did, did you have any mentors? And, and if so, who were they, and, and what was some of the advice they gave you? I didn't really get advice, actually. Um, I did look at some things that I appreciated. Like I said, I actually went the other direction, like I said, as with regard to seeing people making promises that they didn't have the time to follow through on unless they followed through on the new promise and didn't follow through on the last promise they made about how they were going to dedicate time to somebody. That was a key thing. And also I appreciated when I started in 1976, when I started my own company, Monterey Peninsula Artists was a relatively new company at the time. They'd been around a couple, just a few years, and they formed from Dan Weiner and Fred Bolander, who had been at major talent agencies in Chicago. And they'd, they'd moved to Monterey, and they had... A, uh, real good loyalty from people like Emmylou Harris and the Doobie Brothers in Chicago and some other artists, Jesse Colin Young. Uh, it was a very short roster. It was about 16 or 17 artists, I think, in the early days. And I really appreciated the fact that they were able to do it outside of New York and L.A. or even Chicago um, because that was considered sometimes you had to be in those places. You had to be there where the record companies were to hear about the next new thing. But they were they had relationships and, and credibility and they didn't really need to be having lunch with the person from Warner Brothers and finding about, out about the next new thing and neither did I. Um so it was, you know, good to know that it could be done outside of those markets and also good to see somebody doing it without a really long roster of artists. But a lot of it, like I say, was uh, what not to do also. And but never really a mentor. I had this people I worked for. It was what I was doing was not something they were experienced in, really, as far as in Milwaukee, reaching out beyond the Milwaukee boundaries, or or consistently booking national entertainment uh, week to week to week to week, uh, and bringing it into the the city, as opposed to when they were doing something like that, they might find a top forty act that somebody wanted once every several months. Uh, and when I moved out here, they really weren't a sophisticated agency. It was just a a means of uh, extra income for a, uh, a company that was booking a club that all the major jazz artists played at and, and being able to list them and maybe find other work for them and, and help the artists to some degree and also help themselves with uh, 
building awareness and, and getting those commissions, but they really weren't uh, an effective operating agency when I came in. So no mentors is a short answer to speak of, really. Sure, yeah. What, what advice would you give to yourself um, at, at 21? If you could go back. Good question. Got me stumped here. Um, let's see. Uh, I don't really know. I think I'm not. Uh, I don't feel like uh, you know. There's certainly a million things I could have done better. Uh, I guess sleep more, exercise more, less sugar, and you'd be more relaxed, you know, and be able to handle things more diplomatically in in certain situations. Be more patient. Um, but I was dealing with circumstances as they arose, and hopefully did the best I could in most of those situations. Um, but you know, there was only so much I could do at, in each of those junctures. You know, in, in northern Wisconsin, nobody was really bringing in entertainment until myself and some friends did. And uh, one of the things I learned then, I think, is that uh, it was a small town with not great uh, awareness of the type of alternate alternative music we could bring in, which was not the alternative like now. It was just rock bands that were not doing not on top 40 radio and things, and that uh, recognizing that <clears throat> we weren't in Minneapolis, we were in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and and so uh, to not expect as much support. You know, I did first concert was a success, other concerts I lost money on in some cases, um, and then I I but I helped people locally too. I helped local friends get jobs uh, in in regional, you know, just working with. Uh, community organizations and everything to get work for those bands and, and fundraising things for the organizations. So it helped everybody. It was really not much more I could have done there. Uh, Milwaukee, I'm not sure how much more I could have done there. And, and then there's, uh, if you want to do more, you know, really I was, I'm pretty happy with the way things turned out. Um, there's certain things that I could have done. I passed on representing Stevie Ray Vaughan, uh, various other situations like that, but at that time, he didn't inspire the same kind of heartfelt passion that, that I wanted to find in people I was going to dedicate all my time to. Um, I really liked him, and I was with him the night that he passed, you know, and I was, we were friends throughout um, and did a lot of collaboration with different artists we represented. But, uh, you know, so there's things I could have done that would have had more success, more money, things like that, but I'm, I don't really regret and I'm not sure what I could have advised myself again, ex except for maybe, uh, maybe. Uh, well, there's various things I would have liked to have had another agent or two. But I asked my agents about it, hiring more agents, and uh, they really didn't want to. You know, and it was, uh, I didn't. I tried not to command the agents as to what they needed to do. I wanted to have. They were the ones out in the trenches, and I wanted them to believe in what they were doing, and feel good about what they were doing. So, so I'm. I think I'd, in most cases, there's, again, there's millions of little circumstances that could have been better, but I think that uh, each situation I was doing the best I could. Maybe one thing that would have been better, but I didn't really have the opportunity, is, is to have those mentors, or at least to learn more about what to do and not to do, and work in an agency, a larger agency, and see how they did it, uh, because really I... I extended the bounds of what I was doing in Eau Claire. I extended it in Milwaukee and, and the company I came here to work for. And I never worked in a company that was already established 
doing bigger things than I started doing. And so I never learned how they do it on that level, firsthand anyway. Well, you definitely did the right thing over time for sure, and I want to paint the picture for people listening who might not be familiar with the scope of Rosebud. Um, so allow me to interject for just a second. Uh, the artists you worked with over over the years earned 125 Grammy nominations and 25 Grammy wins, nine Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductions, six uh, six Grammy Lifetime Achievement or Trustee Awards, and 15 Blues Hall of Fame inductions. Very impressive list of accomplishments. What advice would you have to someone who's trying to grow his own agency? Um, it's interesting. When I did start this, actually just several months before I you know, moved to California, somebody I knew in Illinois started an agency, and I thought, boy, they've got to be crazy to start an agency in these times. This was actually back when we had an oil embargo and a crisis, and people had, could only buy gas on alternate days and everything. Um you know, judging by their license plate. You know, if their license plate was an odd or an even last number, then they could buy uh, gasoline on those days, on those odd or even days. Um, and also, disco was huge at the time, and people were not booking, you know, their clubs that were booking live entertainment suddenly started, stopped booking live entertainment because they thought, why do I risk $250,000, dollars or whatever to bring in a regional band when I can pay $500 and get a little lighting uh, set up and a turntable and, and because there was no digital music at the time and, and play disco music. And I, and I and it, the same investment works night after night after night without any additional investment or risk. Um, so it was really a, a crazy time. Um, I'd say the biggest uh, piece of advice is not to start your own agency until you've worked elsewhere. And, you know, everybody's going to make mistakes starting out, and you can go broke instantly, you know, and there's uh, there's a, some situations, and it depends on the part of the country, some situations are easier now than then and vice versa. Um, when I was in Wisconsin and booking regional bands, they would need bands uh, to fill their weekends and clubs and so on and so forth, and they'd have natural draw to a certain degree, and they would pay bands you know, not a lot of money overall, but it was it worked for the circumstances. Whereas there's situations now where bands that are not known have to pay to play, or or, or they they have to bring in their own audience, or get strictly a percentage of the door. So it's it can be tougher. Tougher. So if you don't have relationships with artists to be on your roster, and you're starting a new agency, then you know where does the money come from? You, you know, it's not all about money, but you do have to. If you don't pay the bills, the doors close. You know, and I was very happy later on to not have to worry about. You know, we could make choices based upon who we really believed in and were moved by, and frequently disregard the money. We would just, uh, we would not be in a position to sign a number of artists that we weren't making money. We had to see that at some point it would come around and pay for itself. We couldn't afford to be a charity, but we also took a lot of chances. Uh, so anyway, long answer to a short question, but uh, I would say, again, the best thing to do is get your experience on somebody else's dime, you know, uh, intern or work in whatever way you can in another agency, ideally, if you're going to start an agency. But the good thing about the music business is there's a lot of 
ability to move from one part of the business to another. Um, road managers become managers or become agents. Um, people at record companies moved into management. Uh, lawyers moved into management. Uh, agents moved into management, and and vice versa. You know, this once you really get an understanding of the live performance side, uh, it's there's an openness to move from one point to another. And I think that just tangenting off to another point there, there's you know, there's no specific qualifications to get in the music business, which is good and bad. Um uh, it's open for anybody with the ability and the desire. But I always thought when I was growing up, the careers that were thought of as the lucrative careers were doctor and lawyer. This is all pre high tech and everything. And but to be a doctor or a lawyer you had to you know, really prove yourself, passing the bar, various medical exams and things like that to to show that you really could do the job. But you could be in a bar and Bob Dylan could sit down next to you and you could drink all night and have great conversations and he, he loved your philosophy and your your common sense and the next day you're Bob Dylan's manager, you know, um, and making, you know, tons of money more than the doctors and lawyers. So it's uh, it's good as far as opportunity, but it's, it also allowed a lot of people who were just looking for money to be in the business and not really be that qualified. Uh, so it goes both ways. But but anyway, um, again, uh, gaining experience uh, from people that have the experience before going out and making every single mistake on your own is extremely valuable. And also you, working for somebody else, you will get, experience with the people that they've already got relationships with. Um, Irving Azoff is, you know, one of the biggest people in the music industry, and he worked just in a management company for somebody else. He actually had a booking agency in Illinois, which I worked with him way back, Azoff Goldstein Agency. Uh, but uh, he went to California, and he, he worked in a management company for somebody else, and one of the groups that he was supposed to keep an eye on and help out on the road was the Eagles. And he, uh, you know, he impressed them to a great degree with how he handled some really challenging situations and suddenly he's the Eagles manager yeah, and and was until the end. But he, So at any rate, yeah, working within an existing organization before you're starting your own is, is extremely valuable. Well, it was... One of the things I missed. Right. Well, it would seem... Um... Illinois is somewhat of an interesting connection between us. I was very fortunate to get experience first uh, as an intern and ultimately working my way up um, at the Kirland Agency here in Boston. Ted Kirland is originally from Illinois. And to your point, I don't, you know, I'm so grateful for my years there and just learned so much. I got to see Ted a couple of days ago at the um, ATOP conference in New York. Mm -hmm. It was really good to catch up with him, but you're absolutely right. Um, it was invaluable and and uh, really grateful for all that time. I, I want to ask you a little bit about when Rosebud started to take off. How, how did you structure the business? Was it was it a corporation? How did how did you do that? Um, yeah, I was advised in the very beginning. It was just plain survival. Um, I'd moved to California in a, with what I could fit in my two seater car. Um, and I 
moved into an apartment that I bought a bed from the previous tenant, and that was the full extent of my furniture, that bed for 30-some dollars. Um, so when I when the phones were cut off and I came home to make phone calls and start booking, I went downtown and I, I bought a typewriter and I bought a stapler and some... At the time, we had to have copy paper, carbon paper. If you make three copies of a contract, you have to have carbon paper in between each of the copies uh, uh, to make copies and so on. Anyways, and I would uh, uh, be on the phone during the day, sitting on the bed, and at night I took a, a shelf out of the closet, and put it on the bed, and put the typewriter on the shelf and typed the contracts and letters. Uh, so it was absolutely crazy basic survival to begin with, but uh, I was advised then later that I needed to make it a corporation, uh, that I needed to get a talent agency license. Uh, there was a lot of concern at the time in California. Um, there's a concern about uh, managers who book and that it's against the law, and there's confusion about that, and I, I got that straight. In California, you can't be a, a personal manager is not uh, restricted. They can take 50% or whatever percentage from an artist, but they they are not allowed to secure employment for the artist. Um, an agent uh, is licensed by the state, a talent agency license, but they are limited to a maximum of 25% for any individual engagement that goes down for the length of the engagement to 15%. But... Uh, so a lot of people thought what I was doing, because I was managing John Hyatt from day one with Rosebud and others later on, all the way through and before Rosebud. Uh, but uh, at any rate, I got a talent agency license, and it incorporates being able to manage, but it means that you can't take more than a certain percentage, which was no problem with me because I never did. But at any rate, yeah, had to get the... Uh, had to become a corporation, or was advised to become a corporation, had to get a talent agency license and, uh, you know, pay a bond for that and all sorts of other things. And how did you, as the years went on, how did you balance sort of that dual role as an artist manager with that of booking agent? Um, well, I did whatever needed to be done for the artist. And, you know, some people might say something about conflict of interest, but there's really no such thing. If I was a manager who had a record company and I signed my managed client to a record company, there would be room for conflict of interest because what what royalty am I paying to them? Am I paying them a lesser royalty because I advised them to take this deal? That's a conflict of interest. Uh, because it's my record company, I'm making more money if he makes less money on the. I'm making more on the record company side if he makes less money on the royalty side, things of that nature. But from the standpoint of a, a manager booking, in every case you're trying to get the best you can for the artist, and that doesn't mean, you know, uh, taking advantage of anybody or trying to get more money than is fair, because that hurts everybody in the long run anyway. In the long run, that's not advantageous. If a promoter loses money and they feel like you unfairly charge too much, that's that's not good for a long-term relationship, and maybe they don't want the artist back. You know, so but uh, manager or agent, and simultaneously manager and agent, you should just be doing the very best you can for the artist, so there's no conflict there. Got it. Yeah. Here's something I was thinking about. Um, 
you, you know, you had so much experience over the years and in a time that you started pre-internet, pre-social media, pre-podcasts. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm, right. So I'm just wondering, you know, as I look at some of the things that you were able to accomplish, I mean, do you think it'd be possible to book something like the, the George Thorogood 50-50 tour today? And, and why don't you start by just explaining briefly what I mean by that for people listening? Okay, well... Um... George Thorogood actually kind of basically kind of got jealous at somebody else, uh, some superstar who I won't mention, who had, you know, driven on the bus for all these miles day after day or something. And he's like, wait a second, we do that all the time, you know, what's that all about, you know? And so uh, actually, I think it was a, the driver, the uh, guy that was driving for George, and was, you know, more than a, a guy you hire. He was really part of the team ongoing. I think he came up with the idea of playing all 50 states and so George decided he wanted to play all 50 states and do it all in 50 consecutive days and then at some point maybe very early on also play Washington DC and not add any time to the tour so all 50 states and Washington DC in 50 consecutive days and do it driving um so uh that was a ch- quite a challenge, but it was I was really proud of uh, being able to do that. And so we, I think it'd be easier to do today, much easier to do today, actually, as far as you know, Google Maps and everything else that you can use to to more easily check distances. I went to AAA at the time, American Automobile Association would give their members free maps, and I had to go down there and get a bunch of maps and try to map it out and I also had a little thing called a disto map. It's a little dial little cardboard thing you dial up one city and then you can see on the map how many miles to all the other cities in that region of the country. And uh, that's kinda how I I organized this thing and, and we'd actually had George on tour with the Rolling Stones and they started their eighty one tour and did several dates with them and then uh, we'd already planned this 50-50 tour prior to the Stones dates. And so uh, we could have gotten many more dates with the Stones and had to turn them down because we'd really made a strong commitment to this tour. So George uh, was in the Bay Area with the Stones, flew to Hawaii, uh, played Hawaii, flew to Alaska, played Alaska, and then flew to Portland, Oregon, where his checker cab a lot of people hearing this may not know about checker cabs, but that's all there were for cabs in New York for a long time. They're very sturdy, uh, really comfortable, but very, and extremely sturdy and heavy cars that were made strictly for that purpose in Michigan. And, and George bought two for himself. And he had just one on the tour and drove the whole tour. And I had to arrange it so that it could be driven in this car. Um, so we had to, you know, tie in all 50 dates in the in a row, all 50 states in a row, at the lowest mileage possible so that it could be driven and lived with. You know. And uh, we had to turn down, uh, I think it was three nights with James Brown and the Rolling Stones at Madison Square Garden because it was in the middle of the tour. Um, we did get offered a Rolling Stones date in New Orleans at the Superdome, which was the biggest show at the Superdome ever at the time. And we did take that because it was kind of fit in our tour. I had to juggle some dates and cancel something here, and that was one other situation where we flew out of the routing and then back out of New Orleans and back into the tour. 
but uh, and there was about seven cancellations for one crazy reason or another that had to be rebooked in perfect routing uh, so that you know the mileage could still be done on the ground. And in the end, we averaged 257 miles a day, which is pretty amazing to cover that ter- territory. Wow. But, yeah. And George was actually very popular at the time, um, extremely popular. And we were getting, uh, we were very busy playing all the standard major markets. But that's what I was used to, is keeping him busy playing all the major markets. And when it came time to find a gig in North Dakota, um, and trying to cut just into the corner of this state and the corner of that state so we could say we played the state without adding too many miles, uh, you know, there's like, well, there's not really anything going on here. You know, and I was calling bowling alleys and things and saying, you know, do you have, who puts on music in the town? And they finally say, well, this guy sometimes does something. And I, I called him up and he said, well, and I had my dates laid out, the dates that they had to play in certain cities. It, it, it all had to work together. And he said, I never heard of George Thurgood, and I never do shows on Monday night. You know? And I said, well, somehow we will make a deal. And we did. You know, uh, In in Wyoming, uh, we booked a show in a prison, and the prison added a new wing. And so the prison suddenly got worried that if they had a concert in one wing and the, and the people in the other wing couldn't see the concert, there might be a riot. So they canceled the date. I had to, I think I ended up booking them on Holiday Inn that night. Uh, so it went from, you know, tiny little place in Mandan, North Dakota, and, and, a, and a Holiday Inn, and, and, and George said he'd play in a plywood sheet on top of a pool table if he had to to make it all work. But, but uh, you know, we went from the Superdome, the largest concert in indoor concert in the country at the time uh, to these tiny little things on the same tour and finished the tour on a Friday night in uh, Pasadena and uh, the Stones had continually been wanting us to do more shows so we started to back up with the Stones Friday night in Los Angeles by Sunday afternoon we were back with the Stones in Arizona and finished the tour with them including their pay-per-view at the end of the tour that's amazing. What, what, what was the name of the tool that you described using the name, the map? name of what? I'm sorry? What was the name of the tool that you described using for the map? Uh, what was that called? Disto map. It's a, you know, it's a rectangular kind of thing, uh, but it's it's circles inside of it, and you you dial. These, you, you would find these in gas stations or something. You know, you, so, you, uh, yeah. you so dial a like city, I, and then there's little holes in the map all over the place, and you dial up Austin, Texas, and Appearing in the hole next to Dallas is the distance between Austin and Dallas, and Austin and Houston, and so on and so forth. And you turn the dial to uh, Dallas, and it'll show you how far you get it is from Dallas to Austin, and so on and so forth. That's so great. I've never seen one. I mean, it sounds like a, I, I should have no reason to complain about the two to three seconds it might take for Google Maps to load. <laughs> really, really. But these were very quick, too. They were very convenient. I loved it. Wow. Wow, that's an amazing story. But it didn't have everything on the map, you know. I mean, smaller towns were not on that map because, you know, there's it's a really, it's about six inches by five inches or something, you know, and and uh, they've got to print the names of the cities. So, um, you know, it. Then I'd go to my AAA maps for certain things too, just the regular paper road maps. Yeah, that's oh, incredible that you guys did that. Okay, well, uh, given your experience. Let me ask you sort of a general question about artists. What I mean, what would you say are like the two or three sort of more important things 
an artist could do today to grow his or her career if you had to sort of distill all of your knowledge and expertise? Well, there are so many different things now. I've got a kind of a, a sentence that if I can remember exactly kind of sums it all up, and that's uh, build positive awareness to the degree that people will choose to spend their time and their money or their money on your seeing your shows or buying your music or buying your merchandise. And that's really basically it. It's just building the positive awareness. And then the, anything can fall under that building the positive awareness. And that could be appearance on a TV show, feature on NPR, article in Rolling Stone, uh, appearing in a reality show or something, which is not my world, but, you know, anything that builds a positive awareness and makes people think, I want to check them out, I want to buy that record, I want to see their show, whatever. So it's anything that does that, and, and of course, any one thing would not likely do it. It would be stacking them up uh, as many as possible. And again, with the huge amount of information out there and that huge number of information streams, um you have to be in many places to be remembered. Really, in other words, really maximize as many marketing channels as possible. Yeah, I think I I use a analogy sometimes with baseball and bowling, where you know you can be playing baseball and after nine innings you get a hit every single inning and you lose one to nothing. But if you get those nine hits in one or two innings, then you're going to score some points. And the same with with uh, bowling. You know, you can get a strike every other frame and get 50 points or something. But but if you line them up right in a row, you're going to get 150 points or whatever. You know? um, so it's, it's and in, in the, today's world, it's, you know, you're mentioned, you're highlighted in a blog one week, and then uh, you don't have anything going on for another six months. Nobody's going to remember by the time the second bit of information comes out about you. But if you have... 10 things that are happening, sometimes you want to save some of your news until you can combine it with other news and then have, and then get into as many of those information streams as possible. So people are saying, oh, I saw this here. Oh, I just heard about them. Oh, I saw something else about them. I guess I should check them out, you know. And that's not new, but it's much more crucial now with so many more information streams. It used to be in the there was not only Billboard, but there was other similar trade magazines, Cashbox and Record World years ago, and you would see a new Elton John record come out or something, and they'd they'd show two weeks before the release of the album, they'd, there'd be a industry trade picture of uh, here's Elton John signing his record deal with Capitol Records, and the top executives and Elton and his manager, as an example, and uh, two weeks later the record came out. Well, that that was not a new picture. You know, that was taken a year earlier, nine months earlier or something, and saved to put into the consciousness of the the record business there's a new Elton John record coming up in two weeks, as opposed to using that picture when it was taken nine months earlier. You save it up, and then and then they're seeing the picture of him signing. They're seeing the advertisement for the record. They're hearing the single, so on and so forth. And then it's like, oh, I've seen this everywhere. I got to check this out. Right, right, absolutely. It's really tough, um, as you as you know, all the different opportunities that an artist has to get their content out to stay on top of it. And I. You know, I, uh, it's a big challenge for artists to focus. They cannot focus exclusively on the music or 
that aspect of their career. They either need to have somebody helping them with marketing and be as strategic as they are about touring with marketing or, or at the very least, learn how to do it themselves. It's something I see a lot of artists struggling with. Yeah, I'm sure, because in the beginning, you know, you've got your belief in yourself until you have other people that believe in you, and and it's going to first have to be fans, and, and then if there's enough fans, or if you're lucky, somebody in the business that you know or happens upon you starts helping early, but it's hard for, especially for a young manager to help a young band, because there's you still have to pay some bills, you know. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's a challenge. It's definitely a challenge. It's, it's not easy, and it's probably harder than ever, because there's you know, on one hand, there's many stories were told, especially earlier in the YouTube years and everything about people breaking out and from nowhere, you know, and never would have been heard of if it hadn't been for YouTube. But there's millions more that do their best and don't get that because somebody's got to see your video too. You know, you can make it and and uh, it can be viral and, and you're sitting on top of the world, but tons of people make videos that nobody sees. Uh, so it's it's a challenge, you know, and there's more people putting out records than ever before because more people can make them on their own now as opposed to needing to be signed to a record label. Absolutely. Well, I'm I'm thinking of trying to incorporate a way of, I don't know, for lack of a better term, giving back into our business model that would set aside a portion of, of our income to help fund private lessons for students who can't otherwise afford them. And I know that you have some similar experience with sort of similar initiatives, and I, I really like to hear your advice. Tell, tell me about the Heart Fund, and I mean, what was it, and how did you set it up, and why did you set it up, and how did that come to be? Well, the Heart Fund is one thing, and I'm involved in several others, but the Heart Fund is a different animal on the other end of the spectrum as opposed to helping brand-new artists. It's really... Uh, I stole that idea, basically, um, from the Rhythm and Blues Foundation. Rhythm and Blues Foundation is, I believe, not in business at all right now. They're certainly not active or, or above, you know, uh, putting anything out at the moment. But they were a, a fantastic organization that was, in a sense, that was started by a lawyer, Howell Beagle, uh, talking to Ruth Brown after a concert of hers and having her sign some of her autographs, some of his albums of her. And she said, I wish I could get paid for these. And uh, he's like, you're not getting paid for these? And and he learned more about the circumstances, and it's a very long story that involves Jesse Jackson and and uh, Senator and all sorts and top major record labels and everything. But they ended up establishing a fund uh, and and believe me, that story is longer. There's a lot of zigzags in it, but they did end up establishing a fund for artists, and they also had an annual award show that was the most moving award shows I've ever seen. Not well organized, unfortunately, but really moving because they would give an award to an artist who had 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 hits in 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever, but had not ever made much money or been able to save them much money and they were really mostly down on their luck and they would be uh there'd be a speech given about them a video shown about them they'd be uh given their award which is not only something to put on the mantle but it was a check for $25,000 which was a lifesaver for a lot of these people they would each one play two songs of the house band which might include Ry Cooter Booker T 
Maceo Parker, people like that. Uh, it's really they were tremendous events. Uh, but one of the other things they did besides the awards is they would help uh, R&B artists in need pay medical bills when they're in a real crisis or funeral bills or or even rent or something if they were about to be thrown out of their house. And I was impressed by that, and I had a lot of association with the blues and uh, a member of the Blues Foundation and everything, but not a, you know on their advisory board for a while, but I just thought the Rhythm of the Blues Foundation is doing this for their artists. The Blues Foundation should do something like this for blues blues artists as well. And I worked with the head of the foundation and uh, actually started off by I put a little of my own money in, and then I also established uh, yeah, the Blues Music Awards at the time were called the WC Handys. So I established a tour called the WC Handy All-Stars, and we would package artists who had won WC Handy Awards. And uh, the artists were paid well, at least as well as normal, but then also I would contribute from each tour, plus we'd take a portion of the proceeds from the shows and contribute that to help build the the Heart Fund, which is Handy Artist Relief Trust, is what the heart heart stands for. And uh, so we established that they've they've helped an awful lot of people. I have not been, uh, you know, an active. I didn't play a really active role beyond establishing it. There's other people that took care of it and dealing with uh, how the funds were used and everything. And right now they've got a woman named Janice Johnston who is a a doctor herself and and oversees other doctors and she's doing a fantastic job overseeing it and now they're they're doing at uh Blues Foundation events they'll have blood pressure screening they'll screen for diabetes and high blood pressure and, and various other things and and they're trying to establish a circuit of doctors around the country that can be that can help out uh when artists don't have the money to pay their doctor bills themselves maybe they can get checked up and they found a number of people that, you know, they screened them and they needed help, you know, and they didn't know it. Um, and they've also helped other people out that, that uh, didn't have the funds. So it's a wonderful thing. Um, and, you know, they're they're doing a fundraiser in Arizona on Valentine's Day. They did one last year. But there's several other entities that have done fundraisers or contributed funds to it. So it's, it's healthy and it's moving along well. That's awesome. Tell, tell me about how you guys made the transition to become a full solar-powered enterprise. What was that like? What did that? What was, what was involved there? Uh, not so much involved. You know, it's it's really so easy that everybody should do it. Um, I started. I was interested in it for a long time before it was, uh, you know, really on as uh, as much awareness around as there is now. And when I first started checking on it. Um, I was advised by people selling solar systems that that'll cost you a quarter million dollars to put the system on your roof, and we don't recommend it for anybody unless they're off the grid out in the country. This is the people that are selling it, saying this. This is way back, last century. <laughs> um, but I was, you know, buying, you know, I was subscribing to Solar Today magazine. I've been very environmentally oriented, and seeing, you know, as time went on, the progress progress on it and. And I uh, went back again later and and got uh, quotes on it, and they were coming down. Somebody quoted something, somebody quoted another. I liked a second quote, which wasn't as high as the first, and they agreed to to match somebody else's price. And I paid, uh, I think my system cost about 90 some thousand but after rebates, 
more like 50,000. This was at the time the largest solar installation in the city of San Francisco, actually, um, above anything else, any manufacturer or anything. Um, and luckily, it's you know much dwarfed by many, many, many more now. Um, and we've moved out of that building just this last year, but but uh, it was 96 solar panels, and we made more electricity than we used. Um, but it's the point, really, to your question is, it was very simple, you know, and much simpler now. You you get an estimate. You, you they check on what your solar or what your power usage is, and how many solar panels it would take to balance that. And we created much more energy than we used during the day. The meter would be running backwards. And at night, we had very little power usage. But what power we needed uh, came back to us from the grid. You know, But the, the excess in the day was greater than the usage at night. So we ended up making more than we used. Um, and it's just simple. You just, like I say, you talk to a solar, solar comp provider and deliver your bills. They see how much power you're using, how much solar you'll need to cover that, and pay for it. They do it. You know, they did our switchover. We did it simultaneous with uh, putting a new roof in, and they worked together, but that's not necessary. Um, when we switched over, I can't even remember if there's a minute without power. You know, it's just a total end. And when we go from you know, throughout the day or into the night, there was never somebody could have worked in our office for five years and never known that we had solar power because there's nothing different. That's very simple. Got it. Well, Mike, you've been really generous with your time today, and there's so much more I want to ask you. But maybe to wrap up, um, maybe we should end with this: if, if you were to go back in time and, and start the agency again, right, had the opportunity to sort of bring all of your experience with you. What would you do differently, if, if anything? Um, I don't really... I feel good about the way things happened. And, and again, there's so many different things that things that could have been done differently. I guess uh, if I'd had the money, maybe I would have uh, started out with more staff. I mean, it was just me, and then after a while it was me and one person for quite a while. Sometimes, you know, I'd move from one person to another for whatever reason. But, uh, you know, having more of a staff that was established, but I had no money, you know, and uh, so I'd, I couldn't afford to hire people, and I was I was okay doing it by myself. But it was, you know, I could have done more sooner, but really no regrets. That's so great. Well, like I said, Mike, there's a lot more I want to ask you, but maybe uh, this would be a good stopping point, and we could think about doing another episode in the future, if, if you'd be cool with that. What do you think? Yeah, that'd be fine, sure. Awesome. Well, thanks again. I, I can't thank you enough for your time today, and um, uh, really look forward to being in touch, and uh, hope all is well out in San Francisco. It'll be okay. really well, if you're ever out here, uh, yeah, let me know if you're ever out this way. Come oh, I, I definitely will, yeah. Okay. All, All right. right. Thanks a lot. Take care. Yeah, thanks. You too. Bye-bye.